Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was on page 23 of the Daily Press, a local Virginia newspaper, in between an article about unwanted dogs and an advert for a furniture shop. National regulations needed, read the headline, followed by five short paragraphs reporting from a meeting of health physicists about how to dispose of radioactive waste. The piece ends with a prescription. Agencies need to be better coordinated, it reads, and the NIMBY, not in my backyard, syndrome must be eliminated. The article from February the 13th, 1979, is, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest known use of the acronym NIMBY. It entered common parlance in the late 70s and 80s, often alluding to environmentalists. Since then, NIMBYism has expanded to encompass those who don't want any kind of development in their neighbourhood. A counter-movement, YIMBYism, thinks that America must build more homes to fix its housing crunch. I'm John Prideaux and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how can America fix its housing shortage? America doesn't have enough homes. There are millions more households looking to rent or buy somewhere to live than there are available places for them. The Yes in My Backyard, or YIMBY movement, has sprung up over the past decade or so and believes that it should be easier to build. What would it take for more homes to be built in the US? And to what extent will building more help solve America's housing problem? With me this week to talk about NIMBYism, YIMBYism, zoning and how to build more houses in America are Charlotte Howard in New York and Daniel Knowles, who's joining us from Chicago. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thriving. And Charlotte, how are you doing? What's up in New York? I'm doing well. I was in Washington this week where everything was falling apart in real time. It was fascinating to watch what went down in the house this week. I know you were on the Hill too. What did you make of it? Yeah, I was on the Hill yesterday talking to a Republican congressman and the takeaway was they do not know what is going to happen next in terms of who will be the next speaker. But I think there's a general frustration at the element within the Republican caucus, the sort of nihilist element that won't legislate, won't support anyone else. I mean, the thing that precipitated McCarthy's fall was that he did a deal with Democrats to keep the government open, but for only 45 days. So the next speaker, if Republicans can choose one, and remember it took 15 rounds of voting to put Kevin McCarthy in place, the next speaker's going to almost immediately be faced with the threat of a government shutdown. And whoever that speaker is, they're going to be operating with a small majority, as McCarthy was, 
and with a substantial number of people in the Republican caucus who are just not interested in legislating at all. And so I expect we may be back here talking about the Republican Speaker of the House quite soon. But sorry, nobody knows what the heck is going on within the Republican caucus on Capitol Hill at the moment. We talked about maybe switching horses and doing a whole episode about Kevin McCarthy and Republican speakers. But because what's going on is so unclear, and because last week we were talking about Republicans and what was going on in the House caucus, we worried about it being repetitive. So instead, we're sticking to our original plan, which is an episode about an issue of national significance, the shortage of housing in America, and how American cities and suburbs might build more housing. Daniel is our Midwest correspondent based in Chicago, and he writes a lot about urbanism in America for The Economist. So he's a great person to have on this episode. Dan, before we go any further, we're probably going to be talking about nimbyism and yimbyism a fair bit in this episode. Could you attempt a succinct definition of both? It's fairly straightforward. Nimbyism stands for not in my backyard. And essentially, it's when you oppose anything being built, not literally in your backyard, which might have more of a claim, but near you, you know, if you object to things in your neighbourhood happening. There's another version called banana, which is opposed to sort of building anything near anything. And yimbyism is a more recent arrival and a more ideological thing, which basically is people saying, yes, build in my backyard. Please, we want more stuff around us. We'd like more construction. We'd like more housing. And it's growing in its significance. It's beginning to get legislative wins. It's a real actual political movement. Okay, that's great. Thank you. We're going to begin with some nimbyism. When reporting about housing in America, you'll often hear a lot of horror stories about how long it can take to break ground on a project, even if the person trying to build the housing project does everything right. We wanted to look into what can actually take so long and what the consequences of those delays are. So our colleague Stevie Hertz went to one such development to see why it's all been so difficult. In Lower Manhattan, nestled between boutiques and luxury spas, sits Elizabeth Street Garden. This is our fig tree. This tree, I planted it actually in 2012, and it was this like very small, it was about like a, a foot tall. And now it, it bears fruit. It's it's huge. Yeah, it's big. The, uh, Joseph Riva is the executive director of the nonprofit that runs the park. It's small, about half an acre or a quarter hectare. And it feels almost like a secret garden, a bit overgrown and scattered with sculptures and plinths. They were put there by Alan Riva, Joseph's dad, who ran the garden before him. And so this is the main lawn. That's the gazebo. This is where most of the... The programs happen, yoga, tai chi, movie nights, music, poetry. With the big urns and everything, it almost feels like a graveyard at points, but filled <laughs> with live people rather than dead. Yeah, yeah. So some people... On a sunny autumn day, the garden is busy with tourists and people reading and eating lunch. It's a version of New York that normally lives more in rom-coms than reality. But for over a decade now, it's been under threat. We have over 150,000 visitors throughout the year. We're open year-round. We have hundreds of free public programs. This is as vital as housing is. The garden is on city-owned land, long intended for cheap housing. And in 2012, the city started trying to put that plan into action. Five years later, a proposal called Haven Green was selected. The development would have housing and some shops and offices. It wouldn't tower over the historic neighbourhood. Zoning keeps heights in check. But it would get rid of the garden in its current form. The park supporters, led by Reva, got organised. 
They made it more accessible to the public, before it wasn't all that open, and proposed alternative sites for the housing. We've proven that this is a false choice, green space or housing. There's a housing crisis, there's a climate crisis in the city, and our work has been to find a solution that gets more of both. And so this idea that, oh, if you're against any development, you're a rich homeowner, it's like creating a divide, a false divide. The Haven Green development went through all the stages of planning in New York. The City Planning Commission, the City Council, the Borough President and the Mayor all supported the project. The local community board voted against it, but that vote was just advisory. However, the garden supporters sued the city. Filed in 2019, the suit was primarily over whether the city had done the necessary environmental reviews. It became the kind of housing fight that's infamous acrimonious, lasting years, and, depending on who you talk to, with vastly different realities at stake. What's funny is the developers have quite impressively made this like as if they're the David and we're the Goliath, but we're literally community volunteers and they're developers. I think Habitat for Humanity, we might have been a little bit surprised by the vehemence of the pushback. Karen Haycox is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity NYC, one of the developers involved in the project. Traditionally, we're well-received in the community, I modestly speak. So we were perhaps underprepared for the vehemence of the community pushback. Haven Green isn't just affordable housing. It's affordable housing for people aged 62 and over, desperately needed in an area filled with walk-up apartments. All the flats will be for those earning less than about $60,000, with some reserved for people who used to be homeless. It will also have lots of green space, albeit in a very different setup than the current garden. Narratively speaking, I think it's just easy for people to look at a space such as it exists now and see what they may lose. It's very difficult for even the best among us in the development world to paint a picture of what will be gained, right? We're going to have roughly 80% of the current site will be publicly accessible garden and the building, which will contain roughly 123 units of deeply affordable senior housing. So it's we really do see it as a win-win-win, right? The main other site that the Gardens Defenders proposed is now also being redeveloped for housing and facing its own community protests, this time over height. For Scott Short, another of the developers, with Riseboro, a housing and senior services nonprofit, that was never a real option anyway. You know, we're in the midst of a housing crisis in New York City, and I think it's the obligation of the city to create affordable housing wherever it can. As the number of publicly owned developable sites has dwindled in recent years, the city is doing what it should be doing by trying to identify all the land resources it has available to build more affordable housing. The suit against the city over the development was filed in 2019. After some COVID delays, in 2022, a court ruled in favour of the garden supporters, saying the city had to do additional environmental reviews. Then, in June of this year, the appellate court ruled in favour of the city, saying it had done enough checks. All this waiting comes with a cost, not just in legal fees for the city, but also for the developers who have to sit on their hands. I don't think this would be possible if it wasn't city-owned land, because the carrying costs of this land would be untenable if we had to own it and support it for this amount of time. So that gives us an advantage. But there are 
certainly a lot of opportunity costs. There is a lot of organizational capacity that has been utilized in pushing this project forward. And I wish we were building 300 or 400 units to help defray some of that cost. It is a little crazy to think about how much work is going into this for a relatively small project. Since first bidding on the project, construction costs and interest rates have risen. Nevertheless, the developers are hoping to break ground next summer, seven years after the project was selected. But just last week, the garden supporters got permission to appeal to the state's highest court. Four and a half years after filing the suit, it is still going. Depending on how you look at it, this is either the fight to protect a unique garden from a handful of flats that could be built elsewhere, or a wealthy neighbourhood protecting a nice-to-have amenity only really made public when it was under threat, keeping out desperately needed senior housing. Those trade-offs, as with a lot of developments, are real. And over a decade on, the city, the garden, the developers and the courts are still trying to work them out. So Charlotte, Stevie's example of Elizabeth Street Garden is a micro-example of something much bigger that's happening in America. And there are all sorts of things coming together to cause this housing shortage. Why are we talking about this now? Why is it important? So to take a big step back, housing is hugely important for individuals and for the economy writ large, of course. A home accounts for a huge share of a given American's assets or a huge share of the expenses of a renter. And if you're spending more of your income on housing, you're spending less on other things. So it really affects the shape of the economy, as well as the reality that having adequate housing affects access to good jobs, to mobility. So housing underpins so much of how the broader economy is operating. And you have this really weird thing that's happened, which is that the Fed raised interest rates. Higher interest rates haven't actually brought prices down, but they gave their own kind of shock, which is that people are hanging on to their homes because they have low interest rates, which they locked in prior to interest rates rising. They have low mortgage rates. They're hanging on to their home because they don't want to buy a new home, which will be a more expensive mortgage. And so you've had sales of houses fall and house prices have increased. And so what that means is that if you want a new home, it's increasingly likely that there needs to be a entirely new home built rather than buy into existing housing stock. And indeed, you see new construction accounting for a rising share of home sales. But it's not keeping up with demand. And so if you think about that as kind of a big funnel to why we're talking about this particular subject, housing, hugely important for the economy. There's not access to housing because people hanging on to their existing homes. That makes new construction that much more important. And the question of whether you can actually build anything, which is the subject of Stevie's interviews in New York, is really contentious and dependent on all kinds of idiosyncratic factors. In this case, it's a garden in lower Manhattan. Somewhere else, it's going to be a person objecting to a high-rise near what they perceive to be a more pastoral or bucolic setting. So it's all these really idiosyncratic factors that affect the pace of construction and then have ripple effects through the broader economy. So today we're talking about how that dynamic that Daniel described of nimbyism might be transformed into more of a building-friendly regulatory environment, which would have a huge impact 
on home prices and also just on the shape of cities and suburbs across America. And Daniel, you're a relatively recent transplant to Chicago. This conflict between people who already own homes or apartments in a city or neighbourhood and people who might want to move there, this conflict over new development is a universal thing that you find in every country. What strikes you as different about the way it plays out in America compared with some of the other countries you've covered? There's something that ties together America and a lot of English-speaking countries. I think having moved from London, it's a similar thing in the way in which building works, particularly in bigger cities, particularly coastal cities. One of the nice things about living in Chicago is that housing is quite cheap here. But in New York or in San Francisco or something like that, the similar thing to London where, bizarrely, you know, we think of English-speaking countries as these very capitalist countries. But when it comes to kind of housing... Across America and the UK, there's a similarity of essentially any new construction. It goes through this convoluted, almost centralized planning system where lots of different interest groups who may not actually be owners or may not be formal kind of market participants get to stick their oar in and politicians essentially get to decide together with kind of various officials and then the courts get involved. So it's this incredibly convoluted kind of process to allow or plan the construction of anything. And this applies, you know, very obviously to housing, but also to transport infrastructure, to businesses. It's kind of across the board. And the funny thing is that other countries have a lot more streamlined process. If you look at the French, you know, the French government goes, we want housing here. And then they build it and it's pretty quick. So I think it's something that having moved here from the UK, it ties America and the UK together. Housing is the focus of our conversation today, but the broader debate over building is very live in part because of the massive buildup in clean energy infrastructure that President Biden and Democrats want to propel. And we had a great cover earlier this year, the tagline for which was hug pylons, not trees, because you have to really encourage a lot of building in order to make the energy transition happen. So this question of how to encourage building has always been present in American politics, but because of the housing crisis and because of the climate crisis, it's become much more timely. That's right. And this is a story with deep roots. We'll go back to a century-old Supreme Court decision that still impacts the way American cities look today in a moment. But first, don't forget to sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus if you haven't already. Charlotte, we've had a few emails from listeners saying they're a little bit confused about what will remain free and what will be exclusive to Economist subscribers or Economist Podcast Plus subscribers. So could you lay that out for our listeners? Sure. The Intelligence, our daily podcast on global news, will remain free each weekday. But there is a new special weekend edition of The Intelligence that will only be available to subscribers. There is a new podcast series called Boss Class with our brilliant colleague Andrew Palmer, who has a fantastic take on management. That's our most popular column in the paper. Boss Class will be available exclusively to Podcast Plus subscribers and to Economist subscribers. And then all our weekly shows, so this show, Checks and Balance, Money Talks, our podcast on business, Drum Tower, which has our colleagues talking about China from Beijing and Taipei, Babbage, our podcast on science. All of our weekly shows will be available only to Podcast Plus or Economist subscribers. There'll be the occasional episode that will be free, but to get all episodes, you have to become a subscriber. 
and there'll be more limited series on the way along the lines of The Prince and Next Year in Moscow that, again, will be available only to subscribers. That's right. We've got some exciting plans for those series next year. Boss Class, I've heard the first three episodes. It's really good. It's insightful and you learn stuff. And it's also very funny because Andrew, who hosts the podcast and writes Bartleby, is very funny. And extra bonus, my sister, who's very much a boss, appears on episode three. So I enjoyed that a lot. Which is by accident, by the way. That was such a weird thing. They invited her without realizing she was your sister. She's just of that stature. Yeah, we have a different surname, so they didn't make the connection. So anyway, that's great. You still have a couple of weeks to sign up for our half price offer for Podcast Plus. All of our podcasts for £2 or $2 or €2 a month. Just Google Economist Podcasts Plus to find out the link to subscribe. On the shores of Lake Erie sits the city of Euclid. Named for the ancient Greek mathematician, what's now a bustling suburb of Cleveland was, a hundred years ago, a rural village. Now the folks in Euclid, they noticed that the city of Cleveland was bursting at the seams. Michael Allen Wolf is a law professor at the University of Florida. And by the city of Cleveland, we mean not only the positive things, that is, arts and architecture and the like, but the immigrants that were living in tenement houses and also industry. Dirty, smoky, smelly industry. The idea was to protect the city of Cleveland from moving down Euclid Avenue of ultimately reaching the village of Euclid. As American cities expanded in the early 20th century, planners wanted a way to control that growth. They borrowed an idea from Germany, divide cities up and prescribe what could be built within each area. Zoning in America was born. There were basically three major criteria. The height of buildings would be limited. The amount of area that they occupied, the footprint would be limited and the uses would be limited and separated. And the first city to do this was New York City, which of course was very important. And they started their work in 1913 and finished it in 1916. In 1922, Euclid issued its own zoning ordinances. The village was divided into six zones of use, from single-family homes to apartment blocks, and eventually to factories and industry. This posed a problem for Ambler Realty a developer that had bought a 68-acre tract of land in Euclid. Ambler thought that as industrial Cleveland spread northeast, its holdings would go up in value. But under the new zoning ordinances, some of Ambler's land was designated for residential use only, which made it far less lucrative. Michael Allen Wolfe has written a book, The Zoning of America, about the Supreme Court case that ensued. Ambler Realty had first filed suit in a federal district court. Ambler says, on behalf of all landowners in Euclid, actually nationwide ultimately, that zoning deprives me of my property without due process of law. He also says, why are you treating me different from other landowners? I mean, maybe 600 yards from me, someone can build a factory. I can't build a factory on this parcel, or at least on the entire parcel. So that arguably is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Now, the third argument was an argument that, you know, in effect, what the government is doing is taking our property and they're not paying just compensation. The district court ruled in Ambler's favor, but the Supreme Court reversed the decision. It found that even though Euclid was a mere suburb of Cleveland, it had its own police power. 
the ability to impose rules and order in the name of public health, morals, and general welfare. As to whether zoning ordinances did this, Justice George Sutherland, writing for the majority, looked to nuisance law. Nuisance law says that everybody is entitled to the protection of the use and enjoyment of their property from unreasonable interference. And he said to put the pig in the parlor instead of the barnyard, a pig is not a nuisance everywhere, but it is a nuisance in the parlor. And he said an apartment house can be a parasite. It can monopolize the rays of the sun. It can be a danger to children nearby because of the traffic that is generated. The idea was that it comes very close to being a nuisance. Euclid v. Ambler was handed down in 1926, but set a legal precedent that still stands today. As I tell my students, if you understand Euclid, you understand 90% of zoning law. It's also unusual in that the case is almost 100 years old, and there are not a lot of precedents from the 1920s that are still good law in the United States. Zoning was already spreading, and the federal government had issued its own model law for municipalities to adopt. But Euclid v. Ambler was a major moment in the expansion of zoning across America. Once the Supreme Court gave its blessing, that was it. All bets were off, all the chains were off, and there was nothing to stop a local government from doing this. Critics of zoning also cite the precedent set by Euclid. It's in that line where Justice Sutherland describes an apartment building as a parasite. The desire to exclude people who are not like us did not originate with zoning. It preceded zoning. And yes, in the wrong hands, zoning has been used consistently to exclude on the basis of race or social status. The justices were concerned about keeping noisy, polluting factories away from Euclid's residents. But they also saw the need to separate the zones for single-family units, typically inhabited by affluent white families, from apartment blocks housing poorer, often non-white residents. Euclid v. Ambler set the precedent for how zoning has been used in America ever since, for good and ill. So, Daniel, when people talk about zoning and urbanism, that often conjures up images of sort of mid-20th century town planners being incredibly rigid about what people can do where. You know, a city like Brasilia, the capital city of Brazil that's laid out according to neighbourhoods where you might live, neighbourhoods where you might work, where you might shop. And there's really a strong attempt to kind of control how people live in the cities they inhabit. American zoning is not exactly like that, but it gets going around the turn of the 20th century during the big city-building boom. Can you attempt a potted history of early zoning and how the decisions made then still affect what American cities look like now? Well, zoning sort of arose everywhere in response to this kind of mass urbanization and industrialization. And as people flocked to cities and neighborhoods grew very fast and you had kind of suburbs spread out along railway lines and then roads, you know, not everybody was always happy about that. And this kind of coincided with the rise of this sort of rationalist, modernist thinking of, yeah, let's plan everything that brought you Brasilia and so on. But in America, I think what's particularly different was that it coincided as well with the movement of black people, mostly from rural areas in the South to industrial jobs in cities. And so that added this kind of racialized element to how kind of planning and zoning was brought in in the US. So there's been this kind of undercurrent in zoning and in planning in America from the beginning of 
racism and of classism, of kind of how can we keep people out, as well as what it's meant to be? How can we plan for everybody who ought to be here to be here? Right. So the Supreme Court struck down racial zoning, explicit racial zoning in 1917. But you're absolutely right that decisions around planning and what can be built where have been racially tinged for a really long time. The earliest stuff was actually in California, I think, right, where San Francisco tried to regulate where laundries could be built, which was an attempt to keep out Chinese residents in the 19th century. And then you had other policies, racially restricting covenants, as you pointed to, or other different kinds of housing policies like redlining, which was refusing to insure mortgages in Black neighborhoods that affected housing. But what we're talking about today is very explicitly zoning. And I think it is important to say that zoning in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. So there are reasons why you want to create a process around development so that not anyone can just build anything anywhere. So in New York, zoning rose up in part to help create light and air in the city so you wouldn't have these claustrophobic canyons. And so early on, you had to have setbacks where buildings but kind of like Mexican ziggurats with the blocks stacked on top of each other becoming ever smaller, so there was more light and air in the city. Personal anecdote, my dad was very involved in city planning, and as a child, I was both brought around to places to encourage building sites, but also as a five-year-old was in Central Park with a black umbrella and hundreds of other people showing what a giant new proposed skyscraper would do to Central Park casting a huge shadow over a wide swath of the park, which is why the southwest side of Central Park doesn't have a monolithic tower casting a shadow over it today. So it's not crazy to oppose some kinds of building, but the issue is when zoning becomes nonsensical. And so what you have today are all kinds of regulations that vary from city to city, but essentially set certain rules of what can be built where in terms of the use of a building. Can it be residential? Can it be commercial? Can it be industrial? As well as the nature of the buildings themselves. Does there need to be a minimum lot size for a given area which prevents people from building dense houses? Does the building height need to be capped, which also can prevent a higher density of housing to accommodate a bigger group of people within a given area? Do you try to encourage development along mass transit, or do you try to encourage development that is reliant on cars? All of these kind of rules shape, literally, what America looks like. And when they are outdated, or when you have really onerous procedures that builders need to go through in order to build anything, it has a profound impact on access to housing and on the broader economy. Charlotte, I love the fact that your early adventures in politics have shaped the Manhattan skyline. That's a big impact from a young age. New York, Manhattan in particular, for reasons of space that make sense, has been pretty heavily zoned by comparison with other American cities ever since. But the city that's on the other end of that scale that has the least zoning, famously, is Houston, which is the only big American city that apparently has no zoning at all. How does that work in practice? Houston's this mad place where, in theory, you know, you could build a strip club next to a children's school or whatever. In practice, there's still quite a lot of rules about what you can build in Houston. One of the big ones is parking requirements. So it's like you can build anything, but only if you have enough parking 
as determined by the city for whatever the use is. And it's as tightly defined as, you know, how many parking spaces there should be per pew in a church or per ATM in a bank. There's also, you know, at a local level in Houston, often land covenants in a particular neighborhood, which are sort of private, but say only this kind of thing can be built in this area. So it's not without rules on construction. It's not as libertarian, free-for-all as it seems. But it is true that in Houston, it's generally a lot easier to build stuff than elsewhere in America. And one of the results has been that Houston is one of these places that builds huge amounts of housing, and it's one of the fastest growing cities in America. And that's not because it has the best jobs. It has okay jobs, but people generally are worse paid than they are in New York or in Los Angeles. It's not that it's the best place to live. You know, the weather is pretty awful. It is that there is housing being built there, which means it's affordable, so people move there, and that is not happening elsewhere. Right. So mainly we've talked about the ways that zoning can restrict building, but can also really be used to encourage certain types of building. And so that's what politicians are trying to do now, is change both zoning, but also try to remove other barriers to building to really speed up the pace of construction and of certain types of construction. So it's interesting to see how much these changes within the public sector can have a tangible impact on private sector development and over what timescale. Right. So as Charlotte says, there are some politicians now who want to change the zoning laws to make it easier to build. We'll be back in a moment to hear from a leading activist in the YIMBY movement. The YIMBY movement has been going for around a decade, and one of its early leaders was Sonia Trauss. She's based in the Bay Area and is director of YIMBY Law. She began by telling me about the YIMBY's early approach. There were two things that were different about my organizing. One was that I was organizing across municipal boundaries and across neighborhood boundaries. You know, trying to make a permanent group of people who would support housing all over their region, which was unusual. You know, a lot of housing organizing for and against is very local. And also, it's very project-specific. You know, an affordable housing developer might try to get a group of people together for a specific project, but having an independent, permanent group in an ongoing way supporting housing, no one had that. And then the second thing that was new was that we were organizing for all housing, subsidized and non-subsidized, market rate also, which was very powerful because although, you know, People are good and they want to help out. And in a sort of general abstract way, they support subsidized housing. Most people, even most low-income people, don't actually live in subsidized housing. And so a lot of the messaging for the existing political groups was like, organize for the subsidized housing for people who aren't you. And that just doesn't quite motivate people to cancel their plans, you know, and get to the hearing. That's really interesting. So there's a more politically effective approach to widen the group of potential beneficiaries. But is it also a better policy solution in the sense that if you start from the position that most people don't actually live in affordable housing, if you were to just create different rules for the construction of affordable housing only, then you've only fixed part of the problem? Yeah, 100%. I mean, when you're in a shortage, you just will take anything. You know, yes, like there's economic theory for it. 
But in a way, I mean, I think I was feeling and appealing and still am to something that's more basic, which is that like when you haven't eaten all day, you will eat a pineapple pizza, even if you don't actually like pineapple pizza, you know, like at some point we were so starving for housing. It's really not appropriate to sit around and be like, well, is this the right housing? Are the right people going to live here? No, like just go, just build, just build. Is there somewhere in America or internationally that you look to and think, yeah, they've got it right? If a Yimby paradise exists, where is it or as close to it as we've got? I don't think a Yimby paradise exists anywhere, as far as I know, in the US, in the sense that the notion of zoning, it has been very powerful. This notion that it's important and necessary and reasonable for certain neighbors, right, mostly white, mostly higher income, to be able to keep their neighborhoods exactly the same, that their preferences are the most important thing. That notion is pretty widespread. And in a way, although we're a political group, like we're really also doing cultural work to try to challenge that. Like, is it actually good to have economic segregation? Is that a reasonable thing to try to get for yourself? So we have a lot of work to do everywhere in that way. But there are cities where, for one reason or another, they've actually done a nice job of sort of building to meet demand. And I think Chicago is one of them. I think Chicago has a really good mix of affordability, but not because you're in an economically declining backwater. A lot of times that's the (laughs) trade-off. But Chicago is both actually a very healthy big city and also relatively affordable. How do you think you're doing overall? Do you think the tide is turning and the YIMBY way of thinking about the world is gaining hold? What would be your report card on YIMBYism? I mean, honestly, it's been amazing. You know, it's been almost 10 years, so that's quite a long time. But just my organization, YIMBY Action, we have 50 chapters in 24 states. And that doesn't even count. Like, there's tons of pro-housing groups that aren't even chapters of ours, that are just people working independently, that did not exist. Like I said before, the idea of people organizing for market rate housing across neighborhoods just because more housing is good, this is actually utterly new thing. So that is huge. There are federal bills. It was a grant program, but it was initially called the YIMBY grant program. HUD is now giving money to cities to help them write more pro-housing zoning codes you know, to strip out unnecessary impediments to building housing. So we're seeing movement at the federal level, of course, at the state level. In California, you know, we've had dozens of pro-housing bills. And also in other states, you know, they're all passing various kinds of liberalization bills. So it's definitely successful in that way. And I do also want to say, though, that like the bills are just part of it and really kind of a small part of it. Bills are great, and it really is going to take locals wanting more housing. And so that's why it's the chapters, you know, the groups, the community groups, the people showing up. That's the thing that's the most encouraging. And that's something, you know, like I said, like, we have 50 chapters, and that's just our chapters. Charlotte, the YIMBY movement in America is entering not quite middle age, but adolescence. What's your assessment of how effective it's been so far? 
I think the fact that there needs to be a political movement about this points to how weird the housing market is because a market would presumably operate by responding to demand. So you'd have people who want housing and then a developer would supply that housing and that would have an effect on prices. And that is just not at all what actually happens in most places because of existing zoning regulations as well as other kinds of political intervention. So then you have an attempted political intervention to deal with an existing weird marketplace. As for its success, I think that you do see real changes happening in different state houses and activity among governors. So in Oregon, as an example, zoning to eliminate requirements for single-family housing, i.e. a standalone house rather than apartment buildings. You have changes in Montana, in California, which of course famously has a restricted housing market. So there's a lot going on at the moment. But also really interesting is the gap between activity and attention to this and how long it takes to filter that state-level activity into actual building, because they're all different things that can hold this up. So if you have a state policy, it needs to then be translated into public guidelines on a local level. There are going to be hearings and so forth. And then the second thing that's happened that has become evident is that you have some really ambitious state policies that go absolutely nowhere. So Governor Hochul in New York had a proposal to have New York City and its suburbs be required to increase housing supply by 3% every three years. Other towns to also have a commitment to increase house construction with more housing along commuter rail lines. It went absolutely nowhere. You had protesters with posters that said, coming to a suburb near you, and then they would have a picture of two little houses with neat lawns and a high-rise apartment building wedged in between them. I mean, people really did not like this plan at all. In Colorado, you saw tension between two different factions of the Democratic Party, where on the one hand, you have a Democratic governor who really wanted to encourage development. And then on the other hand, you had Democrats who were more interested in being antagonistic towards developers by supporting bills that make it harder to evict tenants, empowering renters in other ways. So there are different ways to get at this problem that are often at odds, or at the very least, quite messy. And the governor's proposal to encourage development, the more pro-development package, went nowhere. So again, you have this tension, even among people who are supposed allies, of how to go after this problem, which can prevent a law from being passed. Or even if a law is passed, you have quite a lot of hoops to go through before you see activity on the local level. So I hear Sonia's optimism And there's a ton going on, but I also am a little skeptical of how quickly it will actually have a real impact. But what am I missing, Daniel? That was a long diatribe from what I see. What do you see in your reporting on this? I think that, you know, the whole rise of nimbyism, of kind of this incredibly restrictive don't-build-anything system that we developed, came for somewhat reasonable reasons over decades, too, and particularly in the 1960s, 1970s when you had highways that were being built through entire neighborhoods with tens of thousands of people moved out of their homes and their homes destroyed, and these kind of huge urban renewal projects that were so destructive in so many cases, the natural response to that was to create this sort of system where local groups, where community groups have a veto. 
And that took a long time for it to kind of develop to the stage that we've reached, where it's very difficult to build anything and everything's this extraordinarily painful political process. And I think that what we're seeing now is a process going the other way, where people are recognizing, God, we haven't built anything. This is really problematic. We need houses, you know? And this kind of idea of, you know, everybody lives in a home that was built at one point or another by a developer. But this kind of idea that developers are the source of all evil in politics, I think that's beginning to change. So I think you're right that it's going to be slower than a lot of people would hope. And a lot of these laws, you know, having covered it in California, it's a kind of whack-a-mole system of you pass one law and then somebody else finds another way of slowing things down different ways. So you pass another law and another one. But I think the momentum is going the other way. And it took decades for essentially the rights of property owners to build to be so restricted. And I think some of that will take a while to be undone. Yeah, it's almost so obvious that it's not worth saying, nevertheless, I'll I'll say it, which is that you have this big national problem that can be held up by one person who is litigious and makes a big stink at a public hearing and then prevents a project from going forward. And that happens all the time. And in some ways, it's a little bit similar to what happened in the House this week, where you have one guy, Matt Gates, who I don't think anyone or very, very few people would say represents the interest of the whole country who's able to just throw things entirely out of whack. So this messiness that you see is in some ways the byproduct of a democracy, right? In China, you can just build whatever. You just build a lot of stuff because you can ignore individual interests. And America's challenge always is balancing the interests of the individual against the good of the whole. And so that is playing out over and over in different places across the country. And what's interesting to me, and I think the reason why we're doing this now, is both because the problem is so acute and attempts to solve that problem have become more serious. And in many ways, it's kind of apolitical, as you said, Daniel. So it's a real thing that's happening now that has a real impact and isn't partisan. And it's important. Daniel, it's quiz time next. I hope you're suitably intimidated going into this. For this quiz, we're going to go back to the Supreme Court decision, Village of Euclid versus Amber Realty, that we spoke about earlier. Question one. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at that time is the only person to have held that role and also been president of the USA. Who was it? Yeah, I'll pass. I have no idea. Oh, I'm so thrilled. This is great. Um, I don't know either. Yes, your schadenfreude was short-lived there. Pick a president at random. Shall I put you both out of your semi... I don't think it's even misery. I don't think you're even remotely awkward about not knowing the answer. It's William Howard Taft, Hmm. who was president from 1909 to 1913 and chief justice from 1921 to 1930. So the weird thing of being president and then chief justice afterwards, Taft thought that the latter, being chief justice of the Supreme Court, was a greater honour. He once wrote... I don't remember that I was ever president. Get more done, more powerful. Yeah, you don't have to deal with those pesky voters. Question two. Taft had been Solicitor General in the 1890s, one of five people to have had that job and sat on the Supreme Court. Can you name any of the others? A clue is that one of them is a serving justice at the moment. Right. I do know this. Hold on. Was John Roberts SG? Roberts wasn't. Daniel has this wonderful blank stare. Daniel's just doing some email while we do this. (laughs) In the place of an answer, I'll give you an anecdote, which is that we had two really great events for 
subscribers this week in New York and in Washington, at which our colleagues spoke about foreign policy. And I was there in an organizing capacity rather than speaking. But I did encounter a few checks and balance fans who all had basically the only thing they wanted to talk about was my quiz performance or lack of it. The answer is Elena Kagan, who became the first woman to serve as Solicitor General in 2009 huh. before moving to the Supreme Court the next year. The other three were Thurgood Marshall, who you guys would have heard of, and Stanley Reed and Robert Jackson, who are a little less well-known, shall we say. So, yeah, resounding null point for both of you. Well done. Daniel, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. Before we go, Charlotte and Daniel, what have you particularly enjoyed reading in The Economist recently? We're bringing back our reading recs for Checks and Balance listeners. Our colleague Jonathan Rosenthal, who is an absolute expert on Africa, has led a really gripping series of stories about what's underway on that continent with scary rise in the number of coups, which point indeed to a bigger crisis. And we were on our editorial call on Monday, and I was listening to him explain this phenomenon. And it's a classic example of a story that from afar you might not pay immediate attention to because you're gripped with the stupidity of Matt Gates, but is actually hugely important for many hundreds of millions of people and has broader implications as well. So I would point everyone to our coverage of Africa this week. I enjoyed the leader about why Rishi Sunak back at home is wrong to scrap HS2, because I think kind of the very high cost of infrastructure projects is something that is afflicting lots of countries, including the US, another one that binds us together. And it's something that we really, as our leader argues, need to fix if we're going to be able to build anything again. We can't kind of carry on living on Victorian infrastructure forever. All right. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for the Rex as well. Thank you. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be on this. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. James Stickland and Timo Saylor are our sound engineers. Do Google Economist Podcasts Plus to sign up for our new podcast subscription. There's also an FAQ page there which will hopefully answer all of your questions about it. Thank you to our listener Beverly who emailed to say that she's signed up and sent us a photo of the view from her desk in Cape Town of mountains and waterfalls after a big storm. Do send us your view as you listen to the podcast. We like seeing those pictures too. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Listener.